0: Thank you.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Free Matman, and this is my coast... Oh, oh, shit.
2: Fuck. No, don't! Matt, Matt, Matt. Talk to me. What's going on, buddy?
1: I'm I'm fine. I'm sorry. I... I just said the wrong word.
2: Hey, man. Take 30 seconds. Find your rhythm. (laughs) You're the best podcaster in Cell thirteen, Matt. You have absolutely nothing to worry about. But if you screw up again, we'll literally turn you into a pig. What? What? Always remember, Matt, that this is the weekly podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wildbow's world of extremely efficient bureaucracy, therapeutic hill slams, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we jump into an interlude with 13.x, followed by 13.9. First, it's time to visit the old Cauldron HQ to find out what our buddy Custodian has been up to. It's bad. It's bad stuff, Matt. It's mm-hmm. bad. And then the Victoria Sveta and Tattletail use their words to save the life of a super old dude who makes people eat him. Parahumans is weird. Uh huh. <laughs> Matt, what do you think about these two chapters?
1: Well, I absolutely adored the Overseer uh, chapter. Um, uh, so many interesting things in terms of how it was done structurally. Um, the, the character who we're introduced to there is so much more interesting than I would have ever like guessed. Yeah. Like, like if you gave me my list of like what, what characters haven't got interludes ever and, and but, but you want them to get one. I don't think custodian would even be on the list, but
2: no, I don't even would... know if I remembered custodian at all until this chapter.
1: <laughs> right. That would have been a mistake though. Um and then of course we go back to the Victoria chapter. There's some excellent uh basically just like solid character interactions and and mm-hmm. and and um intense kind of negotiation, which is a very fun and, and uh, you know, particular kind of thing that Wild Bo is actually really good at. So we'll have plenty to talk yeah. about there too.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the things that's gonna be fun um is kind of discussing how these two chapters play off each other because they are chapters that are taking place almost literally a during each other. And mm-hmm. I think Wildbo has fun with that a little bit in how, um, how one informs what's going on in the other. I think like you look at like a decision was made to say the interlude is going to become before 13.9 and that decision means something. And I think looking into that will be fun.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. All right. So All right. Um, announcement real quick.
2: Yeah, um, so... Just another reminder about the quarterly fan art contest that is going on right now. Uh, The theme is relationships, so whatever you want it to do, whatever, however you want to interpret that um, related to Ward or Worm, just the World of Parahumans entries are due by Monday, May 27th at midnight Pacific time, Pacific time there. So you can head on over to doofmedia.com for more details or just click the link in the show notes. I know I've said that the past two weeks and I forgot to put it in there, Matt. But uh, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do it for reals this time.
1: All right, and you know uh, there are cash prizes. I know I, I try to mention that every time because yeah yeah it's a whole whole different order of uh, fun, right?
2: Yeah, that is a, it is it is, and that all those cash prizes are are so wonderfully provided by our patrons. They are the ones that allow us to put on this contest, so we thank them, um, and we really look forward to everything you guys got.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really fun to see. All right, let's move on into 13.x. Um, so, you know, I've really over, over the, the years come to appreciate the, uh, interlude chapter puzzle, um, <laughs> as a kind of unique and fun thing about this story and, and about worm too. um, yeah. I think, I think to a greater extent in this story though. So, you know, here we find ourselves in this dystopian, almost Terry Gilliamian office complex arranged in a decagon surrounded by very intense, aggressively can do people, and uh and we see that we're on the yellow book and we don't know what that is, but it sounds serious.
2: Yeah. Y Gil- Gilliamian Gilly- Gilly- is my new favorite word. Yeah,
1: you know, that probably it probably should be like Gilliam but Gilliamian is so much more fun to say. Yeah.
2: I mean, you know, when you're making up words, you do the ones that are more fun. So I agree. Um, I, I agree with you regarding the mystery of this and this is one of those ones that really holds on to that mystery for you know a, a fair amount into this chapter we still don't really know who this is and it's kind of this like the, the structure of this chapter is really interesting because it kind of just just with everything does this this kind of slow zoom out where we start very small and insular like we start at this one decagon as you said and, and we have this one character who's observing the one worker there and then we slowly kind of zoom out to see how much larger the scope of this whole thing is and we zoom and zoom and zoom until we see the the breadth of teachers' empire and it's this way of like starting off small and then becoming terrifying as we zoom out I, I think it's great um it's a great way to do the mystery of who that who owns the chapter it's a great way to to really just get us into this oh shit mode I really like it
1: yeah um and there's some interesting kind of um misleading. Clues toward the beginning, which I Mm -hmm. think is a really interesting way of doing this. So like we've got the mysterious overseer. We don't know who this is. We don't know anything about them watching over the workers. We don't even know who the POV really is at at first. We're not we're not told the overseer is the point of view. Right. It's gradually becomes clear. Um, But, you know, at at first we assume this is like this this overseer is some high level member of this of, of this organizational structure. Um, but eventually small clues in the text seem to suggest that this person can't possibly have like a normal physical presence because of the of the things that she's doing. Um, and, he, and, and, you know, here in particular, one of these misleading clues I was talking about, the overseer actually speaks toward the beginning of the chapter. Um, but it's a it's a red herring, basically, because we find out later that no one can hear her when she speaks.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But it's not cheating. Right. Because like it's not right. just like Wildbo had. The overseer speak here to trick us um because speaking even though she can't be heard is something that the overseer does regularly it's a it's part of her character it's a key trait of hers so it it, this is this is a great way to kind of mislead you a little bit but it is not it is not breaking the rules of the character as as have been established
1: yeah and, and also you know when you especially when you reread it and you see the fact that she's so like harsh and judgmental um in the things that she's saying it's very interesting because she's she the you know the the people in the decagon have have kind of um i don't know they're trying to be team players and she's just being very like you screwed up you know
2: yep yep yeah um, i mean yeah we're, her cold nature towards these human beings is kind of slowly like it starts off as just like oh, kind of a jerk boss and then by the end of the chapter again we kind of zoom out to just how indifferent she is to them and it's like holy shit Um, that's what I love about this chapter and and I mean the the cool thing here is you're absolutely right that we we kind of quickly learned that they can't be in the physical space but we don't start off that way right like one of the first physical actions the overseer takes is looking over someone's shoulder while reaching out and helping to press and hold the pages of the yellow book flat so this is something that Anyone could do I could be leaning over your shoulder helping you ho- open something while you're working um, and and not be like physically weird right. But from there we like immediately start to contradict that because as you said um more people start showing up, and suddenly we're we're losing grasp of the physical space and how how people are oriented in the space because no one is approaching the overseer, no one is like like shuffling by the overseer or, or looking towards her or saying anything her to her. She does say something, but no one directly responds to that. And you're right that we're immediately like, huh, yeah, that's weird,
1: right? And also her perspective is so externally focused. Like at first, you know, you feel like you know we're watching, you know the uh the dedicated but nervous Lori tried to recover from this minor slip up she's made and and her, you know, her cell manager swoops in, tries to get her head back in the game. Um, and then Lori is you know, confessing that her level of stress is is due to the feeling that she's going de- <laughs> to be demoted to being a mindless drone. And you're like, oh, so so Lori is the POV. Uh no, that's that's just because the overseer isn't really thinking to herself much at this point in the ch- in, in the chapter. Yeah,
2: yeah, I, I, I agree. And I I this Lori stuff, I, re- I want to spend some time on this because I really, really like this. I like what Wildbo is doing with this and how this is kind of messing with our emotions a little bit here. Because like, so we've been talking about how a lot of this chapter is establishing the scope of things, the scope of teacher's operation, who overseer is Wildbo is using Lori here to perfectly establish this kind of competing tone of the chapter. There's like a tonal disconnect happening between some characters actions and, and the things other people are saying. And that's present throughout this entire chapter. Like it, it it, it opens with people telling them to get their yellow books out and Lori does. And, and she's doing it as she struggles. And I love this idea of like, It says she was getting their book out to try to open it to the first section, but the book naturally closed because the rigidity of the paper and firmness of the spine. She typed with one hand while struggling with the other to maintain her place in the book. So like we're automatically starting with this, like get your books out. And this person is like so concerned about the books that they're like typing one handed while holding a book open. I don't know if you've ever like tried to do that, Matt, but I have because Uh. like when I'm prepping for the book club slides. (laughs) Oftentimes my book just doesn't want to freaking stay open and it's like you're trying to hold the book and I kind of do this thing where I like hold the book open with my my elbows Uh and like try to type at the same and it's just awkward and terrible. So the fact that she's even succeeding at all here is like commendable Uh (laughs) because because that's pretty tough to do. So we kind of establish her as this fairly competent person and then in this moment she fails and she immediately freaks out. She's like no don't fuck shit. I'm sorry. Yeah. And so we're immediately like, oh, God. So wherever she is, people are so strict that one slip up and you're you're screwed. And even the name overseer like comes into context here where like she's freaking out and, and you realize, oh, the overseer like this is like overbearing and cruel. This is going to be terrible. But then the cell manager comes over and, and the book has kind of trained us to think that this is going to be real bad. But then the cell manager comes over and this is this this incongruous tone here where they're just like they're just speaking in a calm voice. It's just like, just take 30 seconds, you know, find your rhythm, collect yourself. The, the, the manager like gets a wet cloth and dabs Lori's forehead and it's just like, and, and rubs her shoulder and it's like, it's going to be okay. He's like, Hey, uh, we're about to do another shift change. Do you need to duck out early? The, the other guy can cover for you. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. And it's this moment of, you're like, this is weird. <laughs> this yeah. is the, like, this isn't matching up to what, the character's actions aren't quite matching up. And I think what this does is kind of ratchets up the tension even more than it normally would be because like you're, you're this disconnect is going through your head and you're like, something's got to be real bad here. If she's feeling this way, but they're presenting in a different way, what the hell is going on here? And that's when she starts dropping words like dog and pig, like these, these animalistic dehumanizing labels. And then we start to, to realize the fully extent of of what they're doing to these people.
1: Right. I think it works. Like you said, really well that like, you know, cell manager Miltona seems like a good person Mm -hmm. who's maybe been like sucked into working for teacher and is trying to kind of do his best or her best Mm -hmm. actually. Yeah. Her. Yeah. Sorry. Um, And Uh, it's impossible because the, the things that they're being asked to do are are terrible, but, but she's, she's trying to take care of Lori and she's trying to avoid doing terrible things, you know? And what's, but, but the the contrast that provides, um, to the overseer, I think is is very effective here because the overseer couldn't give less of a shit about like how Lori is doing. Like she's, she's just completely cool with replacing lori with a more functioning part in fact she basically says as much later like yeah things that things that wore out could be replaced um and you know it's contrasting you know michael scott type of boss with uh oh. you know and and an, an, like an eldritch beings sitting over michael scott's shoulder telling him like just just destroy them yeah it's an interesting contrast um yeah so uh the overseer then kind of moves on from this kind of just like Checking around more, checks in on Donna, who is apparently uh, another you know uh, thrall serving as a cryptographic like a, 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 a cryptography breaking oracle and and like and you know pretty much nothing else. She even needs her drool to be wiped away.
2: Yeah, and and I mean this is clever, right? Because like we just had Laurie talk about the pigs, right? That this is if I continue to mess up, this bad thing's going to happen to me. And then the book smartly pivots to one of those pigs it pivots to donna who is this this almost mindless drone um i I love i love the writing here uh there was no reaction no change in donna the older woman breathed at a set rate blinked at a set rate and even seemingly filled the catheter bag attached to her chair at a set rate like this is not a human being anymore and and i love that because again we like we're we're seeing Lori act a certain way. She's talking about a certain thing. We don't really understand it. And and her manager is seemingly contradicting the claim that she's making. But then we just like kind of mosey on over to one of those exact people she was talking about. And we see the extent. We see the extent of the horror. And it's only after this horror is fully described to us that the book really starts to pull back. Right. We, we've established this horror specifically with one employee. And then the chapter pulls back and the scope opens up. And the chapter starts to open up really. And I just I structurally, I just think it's it's so smart. It just it just pings you with the exact emotions you need.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it starts to be a lot more explicit about what's going on. I mean, yeah. what we already, you know, you basically are already figured out. You, you may not have figured out that this is custodian if if, you know, if maybe you haven't read Worm in a while, but you you have already figured out that this is almost certainly teacher thralls watching our heroes because the the text that they're transcribing is the meeting that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. So the, the hive of teacher servants are kicking into gear as they track the, the detective's progress in solving the mystery and uncovering teacher's role. One of the other cell managers is annoyed that this has happened and blames the writers of the diary, which is interesting and probably a fair accusation since Seems like 100 percent of the other reputation bombs were subtle enough that even their targets weren't sure if they were real.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I, that's uh, it's like they just quite didn't sell it. Just just not not enough. Um, so this is I mean, Matt, this is our big mystery, right? This is the mystery that has propelled us through this entire arc. It's kind of being solved now or rather, you know, the immediate Victoria part of the big mystery. Like we don't know the full scope of what teachers planning, and what they're doing. But we do know that this was the group that planted the diary. Yes, it's planted. She did not write it. No part of her wrote this. This was planted by someone else um, and it was sniffed out and perhaps specifically because it was at the bunker that Victoria first learned about it, the one place where they don't have eyes is how she's kind of able to maneuver herself to the point where she gets in contact with Tattletail and starts to break down their attempts at at stopping her. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that the text explicitly tells us the teacher's group doesn't have eyes inside the bunker Yeah, because it's actually nice to establish something like that you know when you have the opportunity to do so, like it, it would be it, it, it's difficult to imagine how you would establish that in a Victoria chapter,
0: mm-hmm. because
1: like how is she going to know but, right. but but now we know like, okay, the bunker is safe as this conflict evolves forward in time, we can we can kind of count on um wh- when are, you know when are they able to to talk privately, for example yeah, um, so.
2: Yeah. So I want to talk to you a bit about that decision, though, like structurally, this decision to solve, quote unquote, solve the case to the reader Mm -hmm. before the detectives. Right. Mm -hmm. We have our two detectives. They're trying to solve the case. um, But the reader gets to find out about that first. And yeah, I mean, last week, Tattletail basically all but told us that it was teacher behind this whole thing. So like, I mean, I, if you get right down to it, I mean, I guess technically that is the case being solved. We don't know for sure. Right. That's just her, her best working theory. Um, but so they haven't solved the case yet. They think it's teacher. They're not hundred percent sure yet, but the book solves it for us. The reader, we know for sure. Why, why do you think it was done this way? Like, what do you think, how do you think this just, what's your opinion on how this you know benefits the, the storytelling going forward?
1: I just think that the way this is going to have to evolve, you, you know, you've got this very established threat that 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 is basically the thing that they're going to find is is behind all of this yeah. and it's going to come for them before they come for it, right? Like this isn't um this isn't the scene in uh you know um 7 where they go to the guy's apartment and he like, you know, sneaks out of the back or whatever. It's it, it's a massive organization, so like yeah. they're not gonna go. They're not gonna go knock on somebody's door. It's gonna be a bunch of. It's gonna be an attack from teacher. So you you understanding what exactly is teacher's objective here? What is the disposition of his assets at this point in time? You know, I think it actually helps also in terms of dramatic irony that we know that uh, he's got. Well, I mean, we we have, we haven't talked about this yet, but we know that he's got fully powered up veil for Mama Mathers, uh, a handful of other powerful mercenaries and people that we hate um, working with him. And, you know, Contessa in his pocket basically um, can't quite use her yet, but the the text assures us that he will. All Mm -hmm. of this this builds him up as a threat, whereas if we didn't get this and it was just suddenly, suddenly Teacher is attacking, then it's just like, okay, um, I don't know where this is going. I don't really know what to feel about it
2: yeah i I agree with that. I think the other thing it does, and I think this kind of ties into what you were saying is this to me signaled this idea that the mis- the mystery of who wrote the diary is not important anymore that the book is basically telegraphing with that 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 central thing it doesn't matter anymore like it doesn't it, it we're we're moving on from that like we used that that was a very effective narrative tool to get us into to 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 escalate us towards this teacher conflict but We're here now. um, The the detective story is kind of ending and we're moving on to something else. And I think doing it in this order really helps accentuate that, that like it's telegraph graphing that the solving of the mystery is less important than the ongoing conspiracy.
1: Yeah, right. That was just the end to start unraveling the sweater exactly
2: and speaking of dramatic irony i want to talk to you about this a little bit because i do think the way this chapter structures itself allows it to do really fun clever stuff with dramatic irony um because we have to say while all this is happening chapter 13.9 is basically being played out in real time right like we're only seeing snippets of it we're seeing snippets through the conversation here and there that uh will allow us in retrospect to actually orient ourselves around the timing of these two chapters we know when they're having this conversation in 139 this thing's going on in 13.x and and uh the other way around as well. Um, and, and what's cool about this is it allows us to see the cell managers and leaders discussing how they're going to stop Victoria and Tattletail from leaving with the old man. Um, we get notes where they're talking about, okay, we got little Midas. Um, there's a, there's a pawn downstairs that we could use as well. Uh, and it's fun because like in next chapter, we'll see getting old man out of there alive becomes the conflict point of, around which the second half of the chapter really turns. So, we're seeing team teacher set this conflict up now, but we get to watch it pay off in the next chapter, knowing what we know about who is pulling the strings, who is actually controlling this. It's, it kind of allows us to see what the subtle teacher influence looks like real time um, in, a, in a way that you couldn't do it otherwise without establishing this first. And I, I think it's really cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that, too. That makes sense. So as the chapter moves on here, the Overseer comes more into focus as a character rather than just like a viewpoint. We begin to realize that we've been in the Overseer's perspective this whole time. Uh, But, you know, like we said, her perspective is often indistinguishable from a neutral vantage point because she just watches everything. um, And she needs to make an extra effort to interact. And, you know, she speaks, but no one hears her. Instead, she has to convey her orders by manipulating metal dust on special purpose magnetic boards Um, but you know, one thing we do immediately notice is it does appear that she has the authority to give orders. So even if we realize this is custodian, that may be a a surprise at this point.
2: Yeah. And I think that's one thing that we're going to focus on a lot that name, right? That change to overseer is important and we'll circle back around that to that again. But yeah, I mean, there is hierarchy here and it appears that she's higher than just about any of the people we've seen so far because she's ordering around the highest level we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. I I do love the detail of how the overseer's like form is revealed here. When, when she's manipulating the dust, because it's like a hundred faces observing the dust particles as she manipulates them. A thousand inverse statues filling a vast space, limbs entangled, hair touching, shoulders and back, toes on shoulders, knees against the sides of head, heads all propped up against one another. It's like the, it's just like it's really cool writing. It's like not the thing like this is not something that exists in real life. So it's always fun to see how this book, you know, describes things that do not exist in in kind of beautiful and haunting ways.
1: Yeah. I, I had a lot of fun trying to visualize this, even though it's technically invisible. Yeah. Um, just like conceptualize what this is and how it operates and, and what she's actually doing when she starts manipulating things. And yeah. another another thing that the chapter, like we know that she can interact with matter like, and move things around. Like, like she's not limited to tiny little, you know, air movements. She can clearly lift things. Right. Um, so it's just interesting how the, the text isn't entirely clear on what her what her limits are, what her capabilities are. Like she's not just limited to surveillance. She can also move things. So, yeah, uh, I think we'll see that, though. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as she moves. She uh, moves around through the Decagon, uh, which we learn is one of many. And then she notes a couple of people breaking down as she goes and she tidies things up as she moves along.
2: Uh, and it's like this is the, one of these moments that like a good author can take such advantage of just showing you a couple different things to define character because we have these moments where she's like just wandering through and like this guy's rubbing his arm against the table so hard it's bleeding. And then there's crumbs on the floor because they're feeding some of their people. And she treats both of these things as if it's the same chore, right? Like, like mopping up the blood from your employee. That's, that's having a mental breakdown and picking up crumbs from the floor and dust is essentially the same action and it's just a perfect way to characterize how she feels about this whole thing without any, like there's no dialogue here. There's no, there's no explicit like exposition about how custodian feels about these people. But just through this simple, the mundanity of just, you know, picking up, cleaning up. It's one is horrible. One is mundane and they're both the same. I love it.
1: Yeah, I agree. She's, she's, Later on, she'll have some fire and some anger in her, but as she's going through all of this, there's just this, like, serenity. Yeah. Like, she almost enjoys the routine of it, even if it's something disturbing, like cleaning up someone's blood.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: So, she moves on to cell one to report in, and she passes through the hallways of what is evidently the cauldron base, which, you know, at this point, we had some clues that this was the case, but yeah, it's established, And we find out that Fortuna is here, having let down her guard and been captured by teacher's people. Uh, Subsequent to this terrible revelation, uh, she then stops in with the fella who snitched to Engel, tipped her off and let her know that stuff is weird here. Uh, This guy has a very low opinion of Overseer. And I think this this bit where he's just kind of ranting at her actually does a lot to... um, Uh, there's a lot of legwork in terms of, of setting our feelings toward overseer.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think this is the point where, I mean, for me, the person who didn't think about custodian a lot since we left her behind in the last book, this was the moment where I finally was like, Oh, okay. This is the custodian. Like Mm -hmm. she's referring to the cauldron HQ as home. She even calls Contessa home as well. Her face, uh, the, the text does not specifically use the word custodian yet, but right. I think this is the point where the book is basically like letting you come to that conclusion.
1: Yeah. I think and right.
2: I, I do think I do think it is very important that it happens in this moment where this guy is asking her, why are you still here? You're not a slave to Cauldron anymore. You don't have to be here anymore. You don't have to pick up after these people do their work. And then we and then we start to really define custodian in a way we've never done before. She could always have left. They were powerless to stop her. She was always there by choice, and he calls it a ship of Theseus, and she says, it is not because I am here. I am the constant. And it is in this way, this beautiful way, that the Overseer is basically declaring this place as... Cauldron still right it might be run by new management it's management with a different set of agendas uh, different methods to accomplish their agendas but because of overseer because custodian is still here things are the same she's rebuilding it she calls it her creation and it's like this we're really starting to like hint towards the way she feels about the hierarchy that we've established so far.
1: Yeah, right. It's completely completely turns our impression of this character on its head. Like, if anything, I had like a mildly positive take on the custodian. Yeah, because she helped
2: Taylor a little bit, right? She helped
1: Taylor a little bit, and and like when you think about it now, you're just like, well, she's really just trying to protect the cauldron headquarters, yeah. yeah. The physical plant (laughs) doesn't care about these people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So finally, she makes her way to teacher to give a summary of the current issues in the decagon. Uh, and she she thinks that line of what broke could be replaced thinking about people here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very much of a piece with the kind of attitude that she must have had back when they were doing all the case 53 experiments. Right.
2: Right. Uh. <laughs>
1: yep. So after teacher gives powers to a new round of recruits, scapegoat takes away the negative components of the power as we we're you know aware that he can do now. That's why everyone is kind of able to have free will and and that's why Laurie is not just an automaton by default. Mm-hmm. Um and then the two that refuse to join him are handed off to a completely rehabilitated Vailford who I'm sure is just going to engage them in cheerful small talk and then just like walk them back home.
2: Oh, you're definitely right. That is absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they said no. They offered him a choice. They said no. They're just going to let him go. It's going to be fine.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Vailford just wants to stretch his legs. Uh so he's he's the one who who's <laughs> escorting them and not someone uh-huh. else. Uh so this cluster of scapegoat, veil and teacher are what uh overseer calls oversight. Uh this Master Trump combo makes it all possible.
2: Don't don't you love that word oversight though? Yeah. Like the overseer names this trio oversight. Yeah. And like so this is one of those things where we're having fun with words right because there are two meanings of the word oversight there is you know the traditional one where it's just like the action of overseeing and mm. so the overseer is almost providing oversight if you will which is i again i think shows where custodian values herself in this hierarchy she kind of she kind of almost sees herself as the one actually in charge here right yeah um and yeah. And, and of course the other meaning is a failure to notice something like like lacking oversight, um, y- or yeah, y- y- like
1: you you had an oversight. You had yeah. an
2: oversight, yes, yes. And so, I mean, that's a fun little double meaning where you're like, you think that the book is having a lot of fun with the custodian. Like that, this is her creation. She's the constant. She she oversees and provides the oversight. And the question that comes to you really quickly is, who's actually in charge here?
1: Yeah. Yeah, right. And it does make me wonder, you know, just in, in the vein of playing with words, like what is Overseer overlooking? You know, what mm-hmm. what is she what is she missing? Right. Because I feel like I don't know, like my, my first thought is like she thinks she thinks she's in charge, but she yeah. always thinks she's in charge. But she's never actually driving decisions. She's just she just wants her little kingdom to be sacrosanct and she doesn't really care who lives there or what they do.
2: Yeah, I yeah, um, I, I that is fun. Like, I, I think the text does make it very clear that from her perspective, she's the one in charge. But I do think if we're paying attention, we see that that's not exactly the case. And that's kind of how teacher operates. Right. He makes you feel like you have complete control over yeah. yourself, over the things that you want. Um, but it's it's all it's all a game.
1: Yeah. Well, he does seem to have kind of sucked her into his vortex of of fuckery um cuz she she kind of like wants his approval right yeah yeah you see a bit of that mm-hmm. so yeah i enjoy this little detail as we're doing the brainwashing that teacher thinks he's being nice letting the people retain their agency until they slip up
2: yeah and that's a nice you know you know connection to that horrifying disconnect we saw earlier in the chapter where like the managers were really nice uh even though like the 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 thin veil of threat is there it's it's and it's always bullshit like the idea that oh no like it's there's no consequences as long as you're good like you'll have a great life and like it's the same kind of like bullshit mindset that slaveholders had where it's like oh we're providing them food and shelter and yeah as long as they behave everything will be fine and it'll be great like it's just it's just absolute bullshit you can tell but he's just so smarmy about it right i Teacher. mean
1: to, to, to remove to remove the tongue from the cheek like veil clearly told those people okay uh, you really want to work for teacher actually <laughs> yeah, uh, so, yeah so get get back in there <laughs> and um, and and now they're gonna be working there and you know it, it th- those are the people who were like I thought it was I thought it was six days a week or, or, or five days a week or whatever right. and and he's like if you don't like it you can leave and then what that really means is if you don't like it then we're gonna brainwash you into liking it yep, yep, yep. Um, and then you're gonna join us and then it's perfect it's perfect system it's horrifying
2: it, it's perfectly terrible yep i yep. agree
1: just, i love it so as teachers posse prepares to leave um on an errand we see that he's got some fallen with him including mama mathers some chate assholes and saint just a wonderful group of fan favorites
2: yeah it's like the freaking asshole reunion 2019 yeah they should get t-shirts made or something they should yeah i mean they are going we learned that this whole organization is going over to earth sea and then teacher wants overseer there because it's home for her so that's the the beat we're heading towards is her creation how she came to be and it's this terrible world that we've only kind of seen tangentially but we're we're diving into a little bit more
1: yeah yeah so they pass through the portal um and as they pass through the overseer's power kind of flickers off and and just for a few seconds she turns back into her human non-breaker form, and I just love this bit here. Scared me, Ingenue murmured. Custodian, overseer. Her own voice was rough, uneven. Um, I, I just, I, I just absolutely love the idea that like sh- no one else has ever. I, I mean, this is my. I'm kind of making this up, right? But like, I love that no one else knows that that she calls herself overseer, and and she's just like my. I'm, I guess now that I have a body, I'm going to tell you that I'm overseer. So you'll stop calling me custodian, but I, but she doesn't really care. Like, I, I guess that's what I love about it. She doesn't really care what they call her, but, she, but, but now that she is here, she's, she's bothering to correct them.
2: Oh, I think she does care what they call them. I, I like, I think, I think the, the fact that she's correcting them shows that she cares. Yeah, um, because she had like she doesn't get to correct people very often. But this is the one chance she does get to correct people. And she's like, I am not custodian. That is not who I am. I'm am overseer.
1: I think w- more closer to what I mean to say is that she doesn't bother trying to communicate much hardly ever. Right. Like like she has the magnetic boards she could use to 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 talk to people. L- OK, let, let me let me re- reframe it. You would think that she would be incredibly like lonely and isolated. Right. But like yeah. you would think that she would be like like a case 53 where she's like uh feeling terribly um um like something was done to her that that's wrong and and she's a victim. Um that's not true at all. She th- when she gets back her physical body going through the portal, she's not like, "Oh my body, I've missed my body." She's just like, "Oh yeah, here's my body. I can't wait to get back to my awesome form where I yeah. fill space." So so like she just uh, the ingenue directly asks her here. And so she answers, but like, I don't think she's the kind of, I don't think custodian, you know, overseer is the kind of person who's going to go out of her way to like, take teacher aside later and be like, I really would appreciate it if you would call me overseer. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah. But I do, I do think that name change says so much about her. Right. Yeah. Um, and, And about, you know, what she thinks of herself and her, her position in this whole thing, because like these words are essentially like by strict definition synonyms, right? Mm -hmm. Overseer and custodian mean the same thing, but custodian has another connotation. Custodian has the, you know, person hired to clean and maintain a building connotation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That is almost by context, like, I don't want to say devaluing because like, it's like the people that clean buildings and stuff work really hard and they're important. Like, I don't want to seem like I'm dismissing those type of people, but they are much lower on the, uh, the hierarchical chain than the people at the top. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that the connotation of that word inherently devalues her because of that. Right. Um, and so, so the switch to overseer is indicative of her valuing herself at a much higher level than she has been before.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, pro- I probably literally undervalued custodian as a, as a factor literally because her name is custodian.
2: Right. I mean, yeah. Like I, I thought, I think we joked about that fun name and it's like, Oh, yeah. cause she's like cleaning up the building. Right. Uh, that's cl- clever. Um, and like she's still doing that, which is the interesting thing. Like she is de- still definitely like, like cleaning and, and keeping the dust away and doing all these thousands of thousands upon things that need done. She's also like helping repair and improve stuff as she's going to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I just think it's, it's a very clever way of taking two words that essentially mean the same thing, but putting so much meaning in the fact that she has moved beyond the one and is embracing the other, embracing it to the point where if someone uses it towards her directly, she's going to say, no, that's not that's not me. Yeah, I am not. I am not the custodian of this place. I am the overseer.
1: Yeah. It even pushes you to consider the alternate meanings of custodian or, or, or the alternate um, context. You know, like um, the the custodian of a child has control over the child, has power over the child. Right. You, you don't you don't think of a of a building custodian as having power over the building but the custodian of a child definitely has power over the child. And so it's just, it, it is a word that it can indicate a relationship of, of power. But our assumption was that it was indicating nearly, uh, that she's the care caretaker would almost mm-hmm. be the, the the, right. the, the conceptual synonym that we were assuming, but it's more like, uh, you know, um, uh, provisional owner.
2: <laughs> Do you think that custodian has a much more, um, softer connotation than yeah. overseer as well. I think it, it does. It, it, it's more, it's a little more passive and it's, it's like, it's yeah. Like, it, like you said, it's caretaking, it's guarding, mm. it's protecting. Whereas overseeing is like controlling is, is omnipresent. And it's so funny that like this, is, she's doing the same things um, with the same abilities, the same person, but that the name changes so much meaning. And I, that's why I love it so much.
1: You know, this kind of uh, highlights a certain thing that's been going on. And I think we're going to see more of it actually in this next chapter where everybody freaks out about this idea of the old man and what he can do. And Tattletale, because she can't help herself, makes a direct comparison to what Kinsey can do.
0: Yeah. Which yeah. makes
1: us realize, like, uh, I, I wonder if the villains know what Kinsey can do, because <laughs> it seems like if they did, they would want to kill her, too.
2: Yeah. I mean, they uh, they make a they make a reference towards it after Tattletail brings it up in that chapter. So yeah, if they didn't, they're learning quickly.
1: Right. And here we have someone whose name is overseer, which is, is, is exactly on that, that trend of just like people, but you know, people whose power is a kind of omnipresent watching eye that that's what she is. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely, I I think it's wild does this thing frequently where, a concept will resonate between characters and and across across an arc, and I feel like between these two chapters we're seeing a little bit of that here,
2: yeah, I agree,
1: so we move on, and the small group of Class A bastards arrives at a celebration in their honor hosted on Earth Sea. Hundreds of people in the crowd look on Mama Mathers instantly losing the the battle before it begins. <laughs> the overseer gives a badass monologue out loud, heard by no one else. Uh, as she expands to fill the
2: area can we talk about this monologue for a bit yes it's so great so we, we learn here that uh she was a person that was sold to the cauldron they forced they, they she was sold and and tested on and it, this the vial broke her into thousands of pieces and it was an incredibly painful experience the first time it happened um And then she gives this this villain monologue, this like horrible but wonderful villain monologue. You wanted me to be a housewife and I am. I maintained my home. You wanted me to be meek, never heard. And I am. You wanted to be nothing and no one. And I am. I am a creator of my own kingdom. I am free. I am a woman more powerful than any of you. I'm everything you wanted, yet everything you feared. And I can be both because I am everything everywhere. It's it's like we we know earth sea is this very like regressive backwater restricting rights type of world and she has essentially become a god the closest approximation to a god that exists right she's omnipresent she's everywhere she can see everything um it, it's uh, it's it's such a beautiful speech that like is Simultaneously terrifying like part of me Wants to be like fuck yeah Like look at you like these, the, your, your oppressors Like these people that oppressed and abused You and sold you away Like she says bartered away For power you will find now that You get what you pay for and it's 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 like it's like this This fuck yeah but at the same time Um no one can hear it It's her talking to herself
1: Yeah right It it, it is an Interesting kind of play on this Concept of what the Judeo-Christian God is sometimes conceptualized as being like a, a watchful presence that can intercede in the world, but maybe sometimes doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it, 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 I think it's a great, you know, play off of this idea that she comes from this, uh, you know, very, very um, bizarre yet still fundamentally Abrahamic, uh, world yeah, um, with yeah. The, you know the, 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 they've used that word to describe it right uh, th- there's a lot of similarities with what she has become and, and the Abrahamic God I think that's awesome
2: yeah yeah and it, like I said like you you, I don't like Earthsea I think that's shitty it's a sh- it sounds like a shitty place and what they did to this girl was terrible so yeah it, it, on, on one side I'm like fist pumping fuck yeah on the other side I'm like oh shit <laughs> like this is this is not going to end well and I love that like the 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 kind of when you're torn in two with that kind of stuff and you don't really know what to think. Um, I think it's just really great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, before we move on from this, like this idea that, that, uh, the fallen leadership are just like welcome with open arms by earth. Is, yeah. is something that I feel like we should have seen coming and maybe <laughs> even been telegraphed to us, but like this moment of mama Mather's, you know walking out on the stage and, and curtsying for everyone basically you're just yeah. like oh my god you're just like ah oh, fuck yeah, yeah. like the,
2: yeah. like the the ease of which he just takes complete control of this entire universe right like it's yeah. just like just the drop of it it's not even hard it's like just, yes come in the, the tools of their own destruction um it's it's really great yeah and yeah. and terrifying absolutely terrifying
1: oh yes wonderful yep so, teacher also mentions having something mysterious on the top floor of his facility. So, what's this? Like, I, you know, one, one of my first thoughts was like some fragment of Eden that remains, um, or or maybe like uh, Idolin baby, something like that.
2: Yeah, I, I'd, I, it's probably not Eden. I think the text kind of made it seem like she intentionally like buried every bit of Eden. Remember, like the the part where the they brought down the old thing is like solid steel now yeah. thanks to custodian um but i don't know, baby it would be a fun possibility i don't know this is definitely like something the chapter leaves us with this open mystery of of oh we he has this whole nother thing that we haven't even seen yet
1: yeah and, I feel and like on top
2: of the scary shit we've just been witness to
1: right i i, I have this feeling like it's going to be something horrifying that we Either haven't seen or that's like a, a permutation of something we've seen. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be a simple answer.
2: Yeah, I think um, that's, I, I think, I think you're probably right. Yeah. yeah. I, I do, like, I mean, reveals are. F- fun when they are playing off of stuff we've seen before like a reveal doesn't work if it's just like oh here's a whole new concept or i mean they work they're just less exciting inherently so i mean i don't think it's going to be something exactly that we've seen before but a twist or a playoff of something yeah i think so
1: right i mean it's it's sort of a a hollow prediction to say like yeah it's going to involve one of the horrible things we've seen before but (laughs) but but be but be new right Uh um yeah you know and and i'm pretty sure scion like vacuumed up all of the all of the Eden uh, pieces before he, before he left. So I, I don't think I don't think that's what it is. Before
2: he left, before um, he just well, like left uh, life.
1: Well, before they before they collapsed the building on him. I'm pretty sure he had <laughs> he had already vacuumed up the room. <laughs> um, but yeah. So the now we're imagining ends.
2: Sion with like an auric <laughs> or a Dyson.
1: Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, I have a very clear image of him like slurping all of Eden up in, into into a void.
2: It's mean- we, it's weird that you have a clear image of yeah. that. I just want to put that out there. Yeah,
1: it, it may not have even happen too, which would be even more disturbing if that were the case.
2: <laughs> it's all in your brain.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to have that in my head. So <laughs> so the chapter ends with the situation going
2: red. Yeah, which I, I love this because we don't have any idea what that means. But context is bad. Red equals bad. Yep. Especially when Saint's the one that delivers the message. Fucking Saint. We didn't like this fucking guy's back. Yeah great awesome
1: right. yeah i i love that he's just he's just hanging around just hanging around yeah thank good, good to see you saint yeah so thanks for so hanging out here yeah he's still right.
2: here it's just he's only here because he's still really worried about dragon matt yeah. that's the only reason right. he's such an altruist yeah
1: all right okay. we move on into 13.9 and we're back with our standoff in in the in the upper story of the Lodge with certain elements of the villain population on the upper floor advocating for a shoot first, ask questions later kind of justice <laughs> against the old man. Uh, but Semiramis, I'm going to try to say it that way. We were told to say it that way uh, Semiramis being the only powerful figure pushing for restraint. She wants information and understanding of how all this happened, so she's not totally gung ho to just kill the guy.
2: Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to do here as we get into this chapter is talk about reading these chapters back to back because like we read them separately. Like I read, uh, 13.x on Friday and I read this one on Sunday. Um, so I had a little bit of a break between them. A lot of people got more of a break. They got almost a whole week. I think this is an interesting experience and and I want to talk quite, like how well navigates this a little bit because mm-hmm. we move directly from this like universe wide existential dread closing of a chapter teacher has just taken over basically all of earth sea he has the ability to mind control anybody he has a huge army a massive information network uh, a god basically and the overseer and has just shifted into the red meaning what whatever <laughs> whatever yeah. that means whatever it is it's going down and it's going down soon so we've established this huge like worldwide existential dread. Oh my God, what's going to happen chapter. And then we move back into a non interlude chapter. We move back into 13 now at nine and we have to shift back into the book proper. We've, we have to move from this existential dread to something different. And I was thinking about this for a while because like, if you had told me just generally this idea that like, okay, at the end of this chapter, we're going to open Pandora's box and then, We're going to immediately shift away from that to like a bar fight. I would have been like, uh, what, what about the box though? (laughs) So, so I I think what's interesting here is that what this, what this, what the opening of this chapter has to do, especially if you're reading them back to back, what the opening of this chapter has to do is get you invested enough again with the smaller scope, direct conflict in front of our protagonist To where you're not like the entire time just just thinking about what about that Pandora's box that we just opened. And I think this chapter succeeds in doing that. I I do. Um, And I just kind of I thought it'd be fun to like look at why that is. And I think like you mentioned that this, this starts with a standoff. And I think that's one of the ways it does it because. We open up with basic a basic level of immediate tension where we just left off with our characters where we don't know what's going on and wild Bill uses this mystery of the old man like who he is how he's doing what he's doing why um as kind of a way to propel us into this we're like invested in figuring out who this guy is because yeah. it's been left open to us and I, I just think that's a really effective way of you know bringing us into this conflict and allowing us to at least in our minds set aside the existential Holy shit teacher side of things for just long enough that the emotional payoffs in this chapter pay off the way they should.
1: Yeah, I think that's all true, but I I think there's also another, another thing that's going on, which is that we've, we've shifted the, the, the problem that the protagonist is solving the problem prior to roughly this point was who wrote the diary, who's doing all of this, who's behind all this? what's going on? we got to figure it out because it's a, it's a threat, it's going to it's going to mess up my life as victoria. um it's going to mess up the teams. we're very concerned about this. now at about this point we've figured out who's behind it and what their goal is. we've solved that mystery. now the problem has to shift, the problem that the character is solving because i've i've said this on previous episodes like a big a big thing welbo does is you're problem solving along with the character. That's a lot of the fun that we get out of these stories. Mm-hmm. So so now the problem that you're solving is no longer what's what's the solution to the mystery? We know the solution to the mystery. The problem is now, oh shit. Victoria's up against that. How is she going to deal with that? And yes, we are moving back into this like low stakes, um, you know, apparently kind of superficially low stakes uh, uh conflict in inside the the lodge but what you're thinking the whole time is like okay she she has to she has to get the old man out of here because because she has to use him as a lead she has to get some kind of edge now that now that we realize that the fight she's really fighting is teacher and his whole army going red on her uh, pretty much immediately Um, so i think that's that's one that's one way that it it basically reconnects the whole story to this new level of problem solving.
2: Yeah. I like the way you said that. I like that a lot. Yeah. That it, there is definitely a shift here. And, the, and even though they're not fully conscious of that teacher level yet, um, there is an understanding that their goals have shifted. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Cause a lot of, a lot of this conflict, a lot of the conflict in this chapter is specific to the old man. Like yeah. it, it becomes, um, rev- the old man reveal to, you know, using the old man as a bargaining chip to then we have to save him.
1: And I want to be really clear that it may sound like you and I just contradicted each other, but I, I don't <laughs> think we did at all. I think I think you were pointing out what Wild Bo is doing in this scene to make the stakes of this scene immediate and make you invested in this scene. And I was pointing out how Wild Bo has reframed everything such that the macro is is reoriented So this scene is connected to the macro in a new way. So there's the the micro and the macro. You were talking about the micro. I'm talking about the macro, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay, cool.
1: Um, Yeah. So the two sides in this standoff are basically competing to see who's going to share information first, (laughs) since they both want to know more without giving the other side too much. Victoria gets tired of Tattletail's shit and tells Semiramis everything about the case 12, the old man apparently he feeds people his tissues of course he does it's parahumans and then he's linked to them uh which victoria leaves vague on purpose uh <laughs> th- but this fact alone even without elucidation uh is enough to cause a near altercation with the cowboy themed patron
2: yeah and so i i want to break this down a little bit like the, the the first thing we have to talk about is we talked last week about how Tattletale was basically in charge of the investigation up until that moment at the really end of the chapter where Victoria finally was able to use her particular set of knowledge to get into the game a little bit. And, and now we've got this this trinity of detectives bouncing off each other. We have Sveta, Victoria and Lisa. They all are technically on the same side. They all are trying to get the same thing, but they're all different people and they have differing methodologies for getting the stuff. And and a lot of the dynamic of this chapter is those personalities pinging off each other in amusing and frustrating ways. Um and it, it like I think it's it's cool that we've like normally you would say naturally that Lisa is probably the best at this sort of thing just because of her power, but we've already established that Victoria's save with the old man pivot point um says that just because she's maybe good at this she's not necessarily the best one at any given situation yeah but the way that plays out is we're seeing sveta basically like tendril kicking lisa's under leg under the table when she's being terrible Uh, she's being just a little bit too much of a brat and and the victoria like basically like says fuck off to lisa's hand signal right like This this part is Tail leaned back looking at me. Her hand went from from fist to flat as if indicating something like a hand signal for a fucking dog. Whatever. So hand signals in this book have been used to communicate before. Victoria Tristan used a very similar signal on you. You used the same signal back (laughs) to him later. And yet... (laughs) The signal in this moment is, oh, so I'm like a fucking dog or something. Well, yeah. Screw you. I'm going to do what I want. Um, it's just like it's just a delightful way of escalating the conflict. Right. Like like not only are our, we're, we're, we're working with people that don't want to give us information, but we're also having these mini spats between us as well. And it, it, it complicates everything and it, it makes it more fun. Yeah. Um and challenging, and I it's 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 great. Victoria's attitude here is kind of just like I'm done with this shit.
1: Yeah, definitely makes it more entertaining. And I I, I like the element that you know Lisa uh, is her own worst enemy mm-hmm. pretty consistently as a character across all of these stories. And I think it might be helping actually to have someone like Sveta who is like first of all. I, the first word that popped into head is into my head was guileless, but I don't think that's the right word. I think I think that it's it's more like she's she 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 hates that that there have to be these like lack of trust and and backstabbing and like mm-hmm. she she wishes everyone could just like have a conversation, and and so she's being very like um, continually pressing for kind of a compromise or or um and, and so is Victoria actually. And so they're being a, a very a very solid counterweight to Tattletales' uh, usual strategy, which is just like I'm gonna I'm just gonna ruin your life if you don't tell me what I want you to tell me. Yeah, which, which probably wouldn't have worked out for her here.
2: <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. I I really like it though. No. Um, like the uh, Victorias. Like the whole attitude throughout, especially the early part of this chapter is so delightful because the next thing she does is completely like drag the Desperado guy, Uh his fashion choices. Like it's one of the biggest fashion burns in this book. And I think that's saying something. Yeah. Uh, He had the Western Desperado look, which arguably came into style and inarguably went went out of style in the course of one month in 1998. Yeah. Just like boom yeah yeah
1: <laughs> she she burned this guy so bad that i feel bad for rusty from our uh from our i know re- campaign. I, I kind
2: of i kind of inserted him in, in this <laughs> role i don't know if you did that but i i think i mentally like subconsciously inserted him into this I, I probably role. did too yeah yeah i like I, I just think it's like it's a great way of again establishing her mood right like yeah i mean she she talks shit about people's outfits all the time but this is like an especially harsh burn
1: yeah hilarious
2: it it is funny that like what chapter 13.x did for us though is kind of want us to question everything like is this the teacher pawn right is is this the guy that they specifically said they were going to use here and and that dramatic irony gets to play off here
1: yeah i kind of assumed it was and i don't see any (laughs) any real counter evidence although i for some reason for some reason i thought they said he was downstairs so maybe not
2: Yeah. yeah yeah it might be someone else downstairs yeah
1: yeah Anyway, so, yeah, the old man, uh, apparently he gets some of the memories of people that he's linked with, uh, and then he has an instinctive read on people later, and then he tends to use proxies when he actually, like, takes action, which is, you know, if you're going to have a parahuman who lives a long time, that's pretty much the power they would have, right? Like yeah. Like, somebody who doesn't tend to put themselves directly into harm's way. Yeah. But Makes it, sense.
2: It, it is interesting what the book is doing here, though, I think. Because they say here that old man's power seems like it would very much grant him the ability to fuck with people in the exact way that Victoria is currently being fucked with. Right. Um, But again, this mystery has already been solved for us, the reader. We know who planted the diary. We know who is responsible for this. Um, And we know that old man is like an unwilling plant from teachers organization like he, he doesn't know about it, but they are using him. But we know he's not the one responsible for this, but our characters are still working through the possibilities. And I just thought, like, this is one of those attention to detail things that I think really helps make the scenes feel real and the characters feel real. It's like just because the reader has discovered this thing doesn't mean the characters aren't going to still have to process through the possibility. Like they work through this and they say, okay, it could be him, but nah, probably not. Doesn't feel right.
1: Well, for all they know, it's literally a coincidence that he's here. Yeah, right. (laughs) Like, like. like which makes which actually makes more sense than it might than you might think at first. Like you're, you're already in the in, in the position of being like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, we know the teacher is using this guy. But but it could just just as easily be the case that like, well, yeah, of course, of course, the bartender at the supervillain uh, uh, hideout would be would be a secret bear human. That makes perfect yeah. sense. <laughs> um, right. Right. Yeah. Um.
2: But but one thing this this conversation does let them go down is this idea This general idea that what Tattletail decides Teacher is doing is he's devoting a lot of resources to keep others from connecting and connecting dots. So Teacher is off there connecting dots himself, and he's stopping other people from doing it as well as just generally connecting. And I mean, that just slots so perfectly into these themes that we've been talking about for these last few chapters, like this idea of connection as strength and power. And even Teacher admits that and therefore is specifically trying to stop it.
1: Yeah, does it strike you as a super Elisa thing to say to to like use a, a turn of phrase that's going to take everybody else like an extra two seconds to parse?
2: Yes, yeah, absolutely.
1: Connecting and connecting dots,
2: and 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 Victoria almost like frustrating. Like she doesn't directly call her on that, but she does like is the one that like verbalizes the those two things that you just said are distinct. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I'm I'm going to
1: spell this out for everyone. The
2: unnecessary translation because of the way, because of she just had to be clever about her word usage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's fun. Like it's one of those things that like in reading a book, I read the the line connecting and connecting dots and I'm like, Ooh, that's good writing. But Uh, like, yeah, in actual, like everyday living life dialogue, if someone said that to me, I'd just be like, uh, just say what you mean.
1: (laughs) Right right yeah I, I i get it come on right yeah right uh so then th- there's a back and forth about what teacher is doing and what engel saw specifically when she was at the cauldron base uh, aside from the stuff we're already aware of she saw people with brooms which um you can make a lot of this right i mean i i like the first guess was like well if the thralls have brooms then that's an indication that the overseer is out of the complex at that moment and they're trying to they're trying to keep it clean or or i don't know i i'm, I'm I'm doing that thing where I go too many levels of of uh, of chess ahead. I, I don't actually know exactly what it could mean. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, they're like, they're, they're people with brooms, but they're very specifically trying to hide the fact that they have brooms. Yeah. Like yeah. they, they, were, they f- tried and failed to hide that they were holding brooms. So, yeah, I mean, it, it might be a, an indication that the overseer is not always overseeing and they don't want that to be common knowledge. They want people to feel like they're constantly being oversaw. Yeah.
1: It could be, it could also be the element that they don't want people to realize that the overseer is being used offensively. Like, like if, if, if you think overseer is always at the cauldron base, then you don't put up precautions to an invisible, intangible woman snooping around your, you know, your, your, your shit. Right. Yeah. That's very um, true. Yeah. So.
2: I do. I do like how Tattletale has a, another fun turn of phrase here though. Um, Teacher is in an unreachable extra-dimensional complex with the army of thralls and other allies. Thralls with brooms. <laughs> it's just like it's just like this perfect <laughs> nonsense thing that she just
1: has to. Yeah, hit. there were a lot of there were a lot of laughs in these two chapters, and I, and I didn't pull them out because I, I mean I don't know. There's it, it's not necessarily funny to just like be like haha. Remember this? Um, but like I don't know. I, I laughed a lot in, these, in in these two chapters.
2: Yeah. All right, Matt. I want to talk about Cauldron a little bit. Let's do it. Because I think the book is asking us to do this. And okay. so we're going to get into it. Uh, two chapters ago, we had Sveta and Lisa bring up the old, was Cauldron right morality debate again? And at the time when we were reading this this book, we thought that this was kind of, kind of random, but indicative of the severe differences of the two characters. We th- This this debate kind of shows us their two outlooks on morals and morality And life and allows us to to clearly delineate those differences. And it is absolutely that. But since then, we've brought the concept of Cauldron back into the story in a big way. Um, If there's one thing that these two chapters have shown us, it's that Cauldron is back. It's different. Um, Lisa points out here specifically that it's different. That Cauldron went at things uh, with with a, sca- a scalpel and precise knowledge of what they wanted to achieve, whereas Teacher is doing things with like just like the, the the brute force ability, resource ability. Like he doesn't have to target specifically because he can target everything all at once. Five people on every single person type of thing. So it is different. But I think as Cauldron, as as Custodian, kind of put it in her chapter. It is it's not a ship of Theseus. It is Cauldron still because she Uh is there. It is Cauldron. They're doing similar things. They're working towards a specific goal while preventing people from discovering about their goal and discovering about them. Um, They're controlling groups. They're exerting influence. We don't we don't know what that final goal is yet, but his methods are a less precise ish Cauldron-esque attack. So, Matt why do we think we're doing this? We're bringing back cauldron and, and not only are we are bringing cauldron back, we're bringing back the ongoing cauldron debate into the story proper. Right. Um, this, yeah. this, this, this idea of was cauldron right was brought by our characters. And I, I think the book is wanting to confront this idea directly again through this, this reborn cauldron's actions.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of evidence that you're right. We're bringing up K c three's several times yeah. uh, in, in these in these chapters. Uh, we're literally in the building. We literally have the line. It is not a ship of Theseus. I am the constant, implying that there is a line of continuation back from when it was cauldron. That just because the the, the cauldron people aren't here anymore doesn't mean it's it's not the same thing in yep. in a sense, right? I mean, it's clearly not the same thing, right? Right. That right. Their their goals. We don't actually know what teachers like like deep down what teacher's goal is, but um, it's probably similar, though. Like, it's probably similar. It's like like, like I, I bet he thinks he's saving the world. He's just doing it in his in his teacher way, just like yeah. just like Contessa was doing it in her Contessa way. And yeah, both like of it, them are going to be monstrous in different ways.
2: Yeah. And I think the, the the differences that Lisa points out here specifically relate to their differences in powers like the, the, you could almost argue it's the same goal. The reason Cauldron was precise and and surgical is because that's how Contessa's power operated. Yeah. The reason they're this uh, five sets of eyes on every last person that matters is because that's that's teacher strength. So yeah. it's like it's like the same but different. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I like that. And and I like this because. There's I mean, there's this, there's this central question at the feet of Cauldron that, that Worm talks about a lot is like this, like was what they were doing. Okay. Like you, you did all these terrible things, but you did them with the goal of saving the world. And, and I think that book has a lot to say about whether like, whether that's good or not, or that pure utilitarian view of things is, is, is the, the, not, not necessarily the correct one, but is as simple as.
1: You could reframe and just say the book is very interested in challenging right that that view Um, i think i think that's right
2: and i think the reintroduction of that here serves to bring about that challenge again because we have these people that that did all these terrible things to save the world the world was saved now we could we could debate you know how much their influence in things saved the world and how much it didn't but the world was saved right not every human being is not dead so hooray um but the choices they made, the things they did, the monsters they created, quote unquote, um, are continuing to carry out their stuff. Right. So there's this interesting question that the book could possibly pose. And it hasn't, I don't think it has fully done this yet, but it feels like we're, we're gearing up for that. It's like, okay, so you do all these terrible things to save the world. You succeed. Then the terrible things that you created to do that, try to, Try to end the world. <laughs> yeah. So or, where where does that put our calculus, right?
1: Right. Or 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 create a world that's worse than basically create a fate worse than death for the entire world. Right. You right. Know? I mean, I mean, I mean, this this it almost feels like a, a reflection of what we've asked before. Like someone's kind of jokingly said, if Gray Boy can put people in loops for a billion years, um, then then is Cauldron automatically a net negative proposition? Uh, and the answer, I think, I think we flippantly said yes uh, <laughs> yeah. to that but but like but th- this is a more yeah. yeah yeah I mean this is a more um uh clear um uh, example of that right where we're actually talking about teacher the possibility of teacher actually taking over and actually making the world in you know in his image basically which which yeah. it, which speaks to a lot of the themes in the story right of loss of agency being such a powerfully negative thing that he's yeah. basically gonna do to everyone
2: yeah and and Um, the different i mean the differing viewpoints of of what survival of what recovery of what moving forward is and teachers is like we we saw through the custodian chapter what teachers view if teacher wins and takes over the entire world we kind of saw what it's going to look like
1: yeah yeah
2: and it's not great it's not great and so i i do think you know i'm not going to sit here and say that the, the the book is trying to answer the the was cauldron right question, in in any kind of definitive way. I think wildbow's writing is a little more clever than than to clearly one hundred percent unquestionably come down on a certain side. But I do think that this is being confronted again in, in ways in which those questions were confronted a lot in Worm, in yeah. a different kind of way.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, it's 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 setting up situations where. Um, precisely one half of the readers are going to say, well, obviously X (laughs) and the other half are going to say, well, obviously not X. Right. And yeah, I mean, that's 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 one of the you know, one of the many, many, many great things about these stories is how often Wild was able to create those situations, actually. Yeah, I agree. Cool.
2: So let's pay attention to Cauldron going forward or New Cauldron.
1: What are we going to call Teacher's Cauldron? um, That's a good question. We haven't thought of that.
2: Yeah, we need a name. Audience, yeah. come up with something cool. Teacher yeah. Cauldron. What, what's go. funny
1: is what's funny is that apparently Mortari was the name for for Citrine Cauldron. And Beaker is actually a better name for teacher cauldron because <laughs> beakers are what you use like in high school, uh, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. chemistry class. But yeah. we I don't know, that's too confusing. We can't we can't reuse that. Well things okay, of something. we can crowdsource this yeah, ends, Okay.
2: and the people more creative than us will come up with an answer
1: yes let's do it crowdsource but by let's do it i mean y'all do it okay (laughs) Uh, all right uh the royal let's yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) uh okay so yeah we move back into the chapter and uh tattletale is speaking and i kind of i just like how how she sketches out the situation i just kind of like this Um, It's helpful for the characters to kind of remind us what the situation is. So she says, uh, uh, Semiramis can help us with details from the past. Midas can help us with details in the present. You are our our insurance for the future, Telltale told him, um, speaking to Prancer. Keep your ear to the ground. You should have a sense of what to look for. Wedges, attacks from an angle that use communication and separate or disrupt people. You're best networked among low-level vi- uh, villains. Keep an eye on them. Report to us. So, I mean, I I, I like dialogue like this where, yeah, obviously, there's a in-universe in reason for her to be saying all this stuff to to Prancer, but it, I it's great because we kind of need this to be explained to us because it's pretty complicated what's happening right here. There's a lot of agendas there's a oh, lot yeah. of of background details where the details actually matter you can't just kind of be like uh yeah I'll I'll figure it out later um so I, I think it's I don't know I I just thought that was a good little, little snippet of dialogue
2: I agree uh, sometimes exposition is good and yeah. needed and um this is one of those areas in which we need, we need this to be laid out for us a little bit. And that's exactly what the chapter does. And I appreciate it because it also shows very clearly why each of these three people are here, right? Like we give them each an important role. We understand what their role is and why we need each of them to say yes. And it helps frame the conflict when Midas is like, no, no. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There is something, uh, before we move on, I do want to touch on, a bit here that I really really appreciated because after they're striking this arrangement, um Samiramis are is talking about reaching back out to the two case 53s that she was trying to employ that ended up backing out and saying, hey, w- when you're talking to them, you know, mention that I, I'd like to I'd like to do that again. I'd like to get 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 in on that again. Um and Sveta's like, oh, you're gonna put him in another sex scene again? And it's she's like, yeah, I mean, probably like, isn't that great? Isn't that we want like acceptance of the body, something deeper than a one kiss on screen. And they go into this. They they kind of devolve into not devolve. They they segue into this discussion of how you depict um, things on on television that haven't been socially acceptable and how you can push the envelope by depicting these through things in entertainment. And it's this really cool conversation about this thing. and And really what I just wanted to point out here is this this idea that. Everything is connected. Um, We've got this this central plot of this entire arc was the case of Victoria's Diary. Who wrote this? Why are they doing this to her? And that's been what's driving the plot forward. But in the middle of this thing, we have the Sveta bomb that's being dropped with Weld, and she's pulled into everything. But now we see all this stuff is kind of connected, right? Because we had Semiramis, we had Big Picture and the Case 53 stuff going on. We've got Teacher and, and New Cauldron being... Um, something that is, is very specific to Sveta as well. Like, like, it's just like, we're bringing all this stuff up and all this stuff is happening at the same time for a narrative reason. They are connected to each other. They're not just one-offs. They're not just things like, oh yeah, we're also dealing with Sveta while we're dealing with this thing. They are things that are linked now. The, the, the book has linked these things together in an important way. And, And a lot of these conversations about case 53 is about cauldron, um, are playing off of the things that Sveta is specifically going through. And, and that's like, that's, that's detailed, well-structured writing, like to where everything feels like it's part of the same story and not like a specific sub plot, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's perfectly well sketched out. Yeah. Uh, everything is, is interlinked to everything else, usually in like two different ways. Right. Not, yeah. not just, not just one way, but, but it's, it's a web more than a chain. Yeah. I like that. Cool like that a lot. So Midas, like you said a minute ago, refuses to help in any way, shape, or form, which Tattletail rather quickly accepts as a given and then tries to move on. <laughs> uh, and then she, like, he seems perturbed that she doesn't press him on it. Uh, and in fact, when the team decides they need to take the old man uh, with with them when they leave, Midas becomes a huge pain in the ass.
2: Yeah, and he basically ad- says that the reason why she acquiesced to his uh, saying no at the beginning was because she knew this was going to happen. And therefore, um, because she was so, you know, willing to just say, Oh, okay. Now he like extra looks like the bad guy. Cause not only is he saying no, he's also confronting them about the old man and it makes him look even worse. And it was just clever tattletale maneuvering, which I mean, there's no reason the text gives us no reason not to believe that that is absolutely what Lisa was doing there. Right.
1: Yeah. I think you're right.
2: And I think that, I think that's cool.
1: I mean, and it's totally something that she she could have got with her power. Like, you know, he she she would be very good at at reading people's intentions.
2: Yeah. I mean, and it's fun because I think the cool thing is this this chapter gives all three of our detectives something to do throughout. Right. Um, You know, Victoria played a pretty key role and continues to play a pretty key role at the end of this Tattletail has her moments too. Sveta has her really great moments too where she's offering solutions. Uh we'll just take them. We'll just take it. Yeah. I, I loved I love the reaction to that. It's like Right. No. No, no, that's not what I meant.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, right.
2: Yeah, I it just it, it's cool that everyone gets their moments. And 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 this also really helps pay off that dramatic irony we set up in 13.x because we know one of the reasons why Midas is being so resistant here is because he he at least partially works for the dude that they're trying to find information about
1: right right uh speaking of of moments i just got to love this badass moment where it's clear there's going to be some kind of altercation in victoria and sveta both like rise out of their chairs without technically standing <laughs> such that they're just like suddenly looming over everyone it's just yeah. such a, a really great image
2: yeah victoria flies and sveta just like straightens her tendrils uh-huh. a little bit yeah it's it's really great um sometimes we love these characters so much that we forget how just naturally intimidating they can be. And I think you basically pointed that out to me last week when I said like, this whole scene is goofy. And you were like, no, Victoria's probably scary as shit. Look at her. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a great reminder of, yes, she's absolutely that scary as shit person when she needs to be. It,
1: what's funny is like my, my actual visualization of Victoria throughout this arc has, has changed to her being like, I've known all along that her costume is like black with like gold armor but I just kind of just like my brain has emphasized the black hood so much more, I guess <laughs> er, ever since she started wearing the black mask too. Um, yeah. I, I, it kind of changes her whole aspect, right. To have this. And, and because later on in the scene, she, she takes off the mask and, oh, and yeah. pulls, then pulls down the hood to like make a connection, which reminds us that she's been wearing the mask and the hood this whole time.
2: Yeah. I want to, I want to talk about that moment for sure. I think yeah. that's really important. Okay. Um, okay. But before we do that, Let's talk about this monologue Victoria gives herself when she's trying to defend this old man and save him from dying. Right. Okay. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's long because it's long, but there's this idea that he represents something he represents survival like that that every parahuman lives with this idea that we're gonna have a short lifespan we're not gonna last very long we're gonna get killed somewhere or another it's just natural to who we are but here is a man that is that exception here is a man that has no matter what he's done no matter how terrible he's lived his life he has survived and there's value in that um she like this 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 thing she ends it with, I hadn't exchanged any words with him. I had no idea who he was now, if he was aspiring to control like teacher was, if he got off on feeding people bits of him or if he was an angel. But I felt like I needed to protect that. And that, of course, is his representative of survival. And I think this is this is like such a wonderfully fascinating like exploration of who Victoria is. And yeah it's not the first time we've seen her, her value survival, right? Um, the major malfunctions were a group that a lot of people discounted, but Victoria specifically valued them because they had survived. And not only had they survived, they had survived together. Um, so like, it's not like a new trait of hers, but this is really the culmination of that trait. That's like, it's like just the idea of this, a Cape being old is, is gives me and everyone hope that, our end will not be death our end will not be terrible that that we could survive long enough to to live and 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 just the fact that he did he he managed to no matter what he did he managed to get through that i think is is a very powerful like expression of who she is as a person
1: yeah i think it it seems like it's something that she wants to protect for its own sake too like right. it, the text doesn't say i wanted to talk to him and figure out his secret no. I mean yeah. maybe maybe she wants to on some level if she gets a chance. maybe they will have a conversation if she gets the chance, but she's literally just just thinks this is a, a thing worth worth protecting. And that's yeah. like you said, I also like this language um where she says every you know, every parahuman I knew I knew who'd been in the game for a while, uh absorbed it and it meaning every parahuman assumes that they're gonna die early. And on one level, usually I would just take this at face value and just be like, yeah, Victoria knows a lot of capes. She's probably right about this. But it, I think very often, you know, it's thinking of her as like a real person, you know, as like a, a well-written character. Very often we, we think thoughts like that where we're like, everyone knows. Everyone thinks this way. It's just the fabric of our world is, is this assumption that everyone is a certain way. That's just us projecting. And we, and we do oh, that yeah. all the time. Right. So like I can I can see this as being Victoria just being spot on about parahumans, but I can also see it as Victoria just completely projecting her view that she doesn't expect to live a long time. She was raised in this Cape family where people died around her and, and horrible things happened to her family. Um, and and I, she, you know, seems to me like Victoria's witnessed more death than average, although I don't know if that's technically true. But anyway, uh I don't know. I, just, I I love the language where the text doesn't draw attention to it at all. And and, and you might be right in just taking it at face value. But I like to I'd like to think that maybe she is just
2: projecting here. I like that a lot. I really do. I, I, I do. I do think that there is some value to looking at it that way, that Victoria has a very specific idea of what being a cape is. And she does put that on every single one of them. Um, yeah Right or wrong It could be 100% correct You're right But yeah. I yeah, I, I, man I like that Let's I, I wanna I kinda wanna You know Put a pin in that And pay attention to that As we go through the story Because that is I, I think that is something We probably will see Come up again Maybe not in the exact same way But in different kind of ways Is this understanding yeah. of This is too This is what Kate means To Vic, Victoria specifically and, and that informs How she interacts With these other people Assuming that they view it In the exact same way
1: Yeah Yeah I think you're right I mean, I can think of capes off the top of my head who I don't think have that kind of fatalistic view. So, yeah, yeah. Like, Parian is the first one who jumps to mind. Yeah. Um, so we're going to move on. And so we got Tattletail and Victoria... You know, as as you said, taking hilariously different tacks in their approach to trying to talk their way out of the place with the old man. Victoria eventually, like like we said, takes off her mask and her hood to make her, her offer, which includes letting the villains in on their whole prison planet process. And it's actually her semi-joking Finder's keepers argument <laughs> um that seems to to make Midas back down, uh, which you're like, oh that you know, Good job, Victoria. Of course, (laughs) my backing down is just a trick. And he's just like basically taking it as an opportunity to look like he's going to back down so that he can try to kill the old man in like five seconds.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I was not like, oh, good job, Victoria. I was like, really? (laughs) That's what did it? Um, I want to talk about like we said, I want to talk about that moment where she takes off her mask and lowers her hood. Because I think this this feels like a culmination of the arc to me. And I, and we don't know. We're recording this on a Monday night, so the Tuesday chapter has not come out yet. We do not know if uh, the arc is finished or not. It could very well go on. But this does feel like we're coming full circle a little bit here. Because we started this arc off with, with the heroes disappearing people into that portal, right? Into that, that prison planet. And Victoria is torn on how she feels about it. And while she's doing it, She puts on her new black mask while she's pondering it. She puts on that mask. We pointed this out at the time. This is a black mask in in the arc titled black. And she's putting on this mask while she's doing this. Now here, 10 chapters later, after having her name dragged through diary mud and being forced to deal and interact with some people that um, she doesn't really like very much. And she probably would have disappeared. Some of these people, given the opportunity in this moment, she takes off that black mask. She exposes her real face and she promises to let them in on the process to, to at least let them inspect the process for disappearing people through the portal. Give them access and information, how it works, show them what they're doing, making it less secretive, making it more known. This feels really significant to me. Mm-hmm. This feels like a culmination of the arc to me.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I feel like she's taken the mask off and then put it back on at other points. But I I absolutely agree that the, you know, the parallel between when she first got the mask and this moment makes a big deal of it. Right. Takes mm-hmm. the mask off, pulls the hood down specifically so that she can like show them her face, convey some some honesty and some some humanity.
2: Yeah. And and invite like a, a lot of the problem we had and a lot of the problems she had with this process is how insular, how secretive how only controlled by a certain segment of the population is and i don't even know if she like has the authority to make that call right to say it's like yeah come on in to (laughs) the warden's headquarters (laughs) right um and and learn all about this process but i i don't think she's just bullshitting here either i think that's i think she sees it as a way of maybe subconsciously making herself feel better about if more people are aware of the process if more people even people on the other side are signing off on this process then it feels like not exactly a reestablishment of the old rules but something close to that like if the bad guys and the good guys have both signed off on this consequence then it is much more accepted what they're doing
1: mm-hmm. uh, it, we made the comparison back then that a black hood with a black eyeless mask is basically an executioner's hood. Right. Mm-hmm. And she's taking on the role of an executioner and sending these people to their death probably. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I like this idea that here she's, she's, it's meaningful that she's taking off the executioner's hood. Yeah. I, I'll be really interested to see. I mean, I don't remember if the text says that she puts it back on in this chapter and I'll be interested to see what role the mask plays going forward. I mean, Obviously, it's, it's going to be meaningful. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so on the way downstairs, <laughs> they're chatting. Victoria learns that she hit Etna so hard that she retired, in Palafale's <laughs> words. One of the many excellent laughs. Um, and then the following line, which is also great. More than 1080, and I, and I didn't punt. I spun, stopped, and after a momentary pause, I very firmly introduced her to the hillside. I measured my strength. And worried you killed her, Tettletail said. I, no, I, you worried you killed her. I just, (laughs) uh, I was so good.
2: This is great. And I mean, it's a payoff for something we've been, you know, dealing with for the past two chapters. Like last week, we talked about how they specifically noted that, Hey, Etna's not here, and we uh-huh. we joked about, oh, definitely dead, definitely dead, and of course yep. that's exactly what Victoria was thinking, and it needles at her, it needles at her more than the nameless soldier that she possibly killed because there was a face to this one, a face that pissed her off, but a face, and I think it's, I mean, it's interesting on multiple levels, right? It's interesting that Victoria checking someone into a hill made them become a good guy, possibly. Yeah, um, they said we wouldn't be surprised if we see her as a heroine a low level heroin later on, which is like, wow. Okay, cool. But it is like, this is something she's been thinking about nonstop. Like this idea that, Oh God, I used too much force here. I I did too much. And I think it's funny that the second she knows that she's not dead, I measured my strength. Uh Like, like it's, it's like very much. just like, it's almost as if like, she's so relieved by this, this idea that it's like, suddenly it's like, no, actually I did exactly what I needed to yeah. there. Like yeah, actually I, I, I was totally fine.
1: Yeah. I knew, I knew I didn't do anything wrong. Right. I was just running away from myself.
2: Right. Yeah. And so much to the, to the, so much so that almost immediately after this point, Tattletale pisses her off again. And is like, I'd like to throw her into a hill. Like the thing that has been, I mean, it has not been keeping her up necessarily, but she's had nightmares. Like right. that's one thing established at the very beginning of this arc. She's had over the past three weeks, she's had terrible nightmares. Um, partially at least we know related to the fact that she took people's life and and, and etna was one of those potential faces and then it's like oh phew i didn't do it yeah well i'm gonna throw some more people into hills <laughs> they piss me off these 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 magic magic hill checking uh yeah people flipping power yeah. that she has now Um, I just think it's very interesting. I mean, it's very human to do that, right? It's like, oh my God, I did this terrible thing. Oh my God, I did this terrible thing. Oh wait, it wasn't that terrible. Cool. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that again then.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I feel like I'm reaching here, but there's a sense in which Etna was like a glory girl parallel. Yeah, absolutely. I think we pointed that out. Yeah. yeah. Reckless, not, not really bothering to master her power. Yeah. I don't know. We we could go on, right? A, A lot of parallels. And uh Victoria serves the role of being the event which causes her to rethink her life. <laughs> In other words, Victoria is kind of crawler and Amy wrapped up into one for this poor woman.
2: Oh wow. That, um <laughs> that's a lot of Am I reaching? uncomfortable implications. Much? Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little
1: bit. Well, but I mean, in terms of the effect, though. I yeah, think, no, I, think, I,
2: I I get yeah, you. I get yeah. you. We we are not. We are not. Let's let's not freak out Oops. about this. I yeah, get, yeah, the yeah. the end effect. You are correct. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
1: I mean, I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, I think it's clear that Aetna wouldn't have made like a life changing decision if it hadn't been a big deal yeah. to her. Like like well, to her, this was probably a trauma. I think it's fair to say.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and it, I mean, it is interesting. I think someone in the Discord pointed this out, that like the the deciding point of Etna's change of heart is not, uh, I almost killed this poor little girl with molten lava. Um, that didn't really get her to change her ways at all. But, oh, someone hurt me really bad yeah. is the thing that jarred, that jarred her into change. So um, sometimes, like, it, it feels bad to say, but sometimes, like, not uh, having terrible things done to you is, is a bigger motivator than you doing terrible things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, this definitely was necessary for Victoria. Yeah. So the chapter... So Sorry, before that, there's a scuffle. The old man is injured. We're not sure how badly exactly, uh, although he's going to live, according to Tattletail. Uh Samiramis puts a stop to it by threatening to cave in the building, and the hero-slash-villain detective team is able to get outside.
2: Yeah, but, so, I mean, so Sveta, again, is clutch here that she like catches the old man and cradles him gently in her yeah. tentacles. Like, we're, we're, you know, I was, I was thinking back about this idea that like when Sveta joined this organization, we were like, shit, yeah. like, she's in a bad place. Like this, she could pop off at the worst time. And once again, I've I've been made to feel guilty about my prejudging of Sveta when she, you know, except for a little particularly sharp, Lisa ribbing she's handled herself amazingly here
1: yeah you know one thing we haven't talked about on the show at least is is the fact that I don't think the self-loathing lessons are going to go well with the post-breakup mental state
2: yeah uh true true I don't think we specifically mentioned last week when she was like I'm losing control I need another I need another rain session. Yeah. And Victoria like, absolutely not.
1: Yeah. That's <laughs> the worst idea. Yeah. Anyone has said in the story
2: so far and that's saying something <laughs> that is saying something. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah. I, I'm I'm interested to see how that how that continues. Like uh, Sveta is this big mystery to me, you know, because every time we think we got like a, a, an idea of where the story is going with her, uh, it surprises me.
1: Yeah yeah me too i'm it's, it's being withheld it makes yeah. me even more anxious right yeah so this chapter ends with tattletale guessing that things are going to uh go to shit within the next 45 minutes which you know we we basically know is correct because teacher is going red at, pro- at, at what is basically about this time yeah um roughly, roughly the exact speaking. same time yeah yeah
2: yeah so uh and and it's interesting because it's like we know teacher's going to go red and we know they're it's almost like things are happening at the same time and they're happening because of each other cuz like there's this implication that the reason why teacher's like okay we're going red now is because they didn't stop Tattletale and and Victoria from getting out with the old man and they're they're going to they're getting very very close right so the timeline is accelerating again yeah. so it's like it's like this symbiotic thing almost where like they're both one thing is happening because of the other and the other is happening because of the one thing. And it's it's great.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. All right. That wraps up the chapters for this week. Let's move on into the community spotlight. Let's we'll start out it. discussing the previous discussion question from last week, which was most memorable setting in parahumans humans and the function it serves. This is, and yep.
2: It's one of those ones where uh, we were expecting a lot of different answers. Uh-huh. And I think we got it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we did. And so what's well, funny to me, the first three are, I'm going to, I'm going to spoil this. The first three are the same setting and it's not a setting that I don't, I don't think I would have picked. I mean, I, I agree that it's memorable. I just, it never would have occurred to me. So Megafire, uh, uh, mentions the cauldron meeting room. Mm-hmm. And they say, speaking of uh, speaking, however, of Cauldron, the setting that sticks in my mind after all these years is the Cauldron meeting room where every major player is represented in their own booth with their own sign. The room is dark to keep faces hidden and there's a constant level of tension.
2: Yeah. 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 Uh, Alternate Arrival says the same thing, as you said, and they said the reason is they enjoyed the is because Weaver is watching the world fall apart. And then she's invited to a meeting of the people who have been pulling the strings since before the start of the story. It was always really evocative to me. The image of her standing by Tattletail and grew looking around at the most important people in the Cape scene.
1: Yeah. Right. It's a cool moment of like, Oh, oh, they've, they've really made it now if they're being invited to this meeting. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. So, and again, uh, Villadin also mentions the cauldron meeting room. Uh, they say we see it, First, when the crushing news of a fourth inbringer sends the world and our characters reeling, apparently, uh, sorry, appearing first as a rectangle of light, almost glaringly bright just beside my closet. Uh, There is something dreamlike and otherworldly about the whole place. And as we find out later, it is quite literally otherworldly, just adding to its strange feel. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I like that all three people here have mentioned kind of different things about it that they remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just, to me that just speaks to a, you know, a, a setting that can so much um, feeling to it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that for sure. Cool. Uh, confusion steve hands says ellisberg i really love ellisberg both times we see it but especially on the second time with nilbog's mad tea party the realistic quote-unquote horror of the prt raid sets up just exactly how surreal the later visit is and it wouldn't work nearly as well as a as a carol pastiche if it didn't have that surrealism to it yeah i like that a lot i i, I forgot that we saw ellisberg twice but yeah we had pigo's interlude right
1: yep Yep. Yeah. The the uh, man that really really well said actually about, about how how uh, the, the the yeah they said it perfectly. I'm not even yeah. gonna bother. To yeah, it. yeah, we
2: can't. We'll just be repeating what they <laughs> yeah. said in a slightly worse way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Good, I like good that
1: job. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Penguin says the Ward's HQ in Brockton Bay. Uh, the Ward's HQ is both a representation of the state of the city and the hero's ability to protect it, but also a re- representation of Taylor's descent into villainy. Uh, and its repair as her heroic redemption. Sarah then tracks the setting over the course of about nine different chapters. Um, and, and basically how the setting details shift in reaction to what's happening in the story. And it, it's a really good post.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. One of the things that we haven't been saying that Sarah has been doing throughout this entire arc is tracking, uh, she's, she's made a handy chart for us and she's tracking, uh, the instances in which mind screwery is being mentioned and the instances in which relationships between capes is being you know, at the forefront of the story and has accurately indicated that basically each and every one of those things is present in every single chapter of this arc so far. Awesome. It's really cool. Next up, we have Nameless218, who says the mall cluster dream room. The tension of being forced into a room with people you shared such trauma with after reliving the events with near perfect clarity. The plotting and scheming by each member, the trading of power and at a, ter- at a terrible cost to it. And finally, the empty part of the room and all the implications it holds.
1: Yeah, that's I I love that setting. Yeah, I agree. We,
2: we did not mention in this week's chapter that um, there is another hint at, at that hidden room, right? There is mm-hmm. like they have they have actual like reading and access into what's going on in the dream room in teachers organization. And they mention that segment of the room again. This this long this long burn mystery that's driving me crazy.
1: Yeah, that was my take as well, that they actually have some way of, of seeing the dream room. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if that was a correct read. But yeah, OK, yeah. cool.
2: I, I don't think it's like seeing like optically like they're getting data. I if see. they're getting visual I, I think they're getting like reported data on what's going on within those rooms okay, uh, I see I got gotcha. you
1: uh b side baby says for me it will always be that first glimpse of the plane studded with the shards that we see during trigger events. there was something both dreadful and inevitable in the description, somehow evocative of, of a battlefield. We eventually learn that it is a literal field of invasion
2: oh that's cool, I like that yeah that's yeah. a that's a a thing I didn't think about, but that's a good answer.
1: Yeah, I love that.
2: Um, next up, we have No Gooby, who says the golden city colored by its a remnant of the past. Pillars bearing the names of the dead line the streets as numerous as there were trees. Schools armed the young with with weapons and gear to help keep the peace. The Internet is available, but just barely portals to the other worlds are a thing. There are corner worlds even. Yeah. So the, the mega city at the start of the book was a very powerful place for no goobi and i agree with that i you know i don't know if it's weird to admit this but sometimes i just go back and open the first chapter again and read those first few paragraphs just randomly because i i really 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 love them i think they're fantastic i think it, the the amount of pressure it must be put on a writer to begin your story and i i think the the, the opening of the story is really really great as it establishes this new setting
1: yeah i mean i go back and read parts that i like fairly often so i don't think it's weird um i I mean and you know i remember last week we talked about the golden city specifically as being this place that has just gotten more and more of a of a nightmare realm yeah uh, over the course of the story and almost almost in a, a you know boiling frog way where uh, at no point does Victoria really look around and, and like think like, holy shit, this is out of control. Yeah. Um, she's just kind of keeping track of the latest uh, crisis usually.
2: Yeah. And I think that the state of the city now only, you know, serves to me to accentuate the beauty of the opening image because like it's like, you know, it's this inherent contradiction, right? That like the, 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 the hope of a golden tomorrow of, of of like sunshine and hope and light and, and progress tinged with that color that actually is representative of the past and the terrible things that happened. Um, now, you know, even that has been like shattered and broken a little bit. I just, yeah. I think it's, it's even more powerful given where the city is in the story now.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Farm fresh Hornets uh, chooses two answers. So I'm just going to pick one of them. Uh, Los Angeles, Tohu and Bohu completely mess up the geography of it, turning it into a, a terrible hellhole. And then it then it then that terrible hole -hole becomes an arena for the battle between Jack and Theo uh, with, of course, the other heroes and the S9000 clones in the background.
2: You know, I honestly forgot that was L.A., (laughs) but I mean, that's that's really cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that was somewhere in my brain. But yeah, thanks for reminding me. And (laughs) and yeah, I mean, I I, the it's such a great setting, like you establish this concept that these inbringers turn places into you know, dungeons from D D basically. Yeah. And then, and then you, uh, and then you have to have a a showdown. Your final showdown is there at one of those places. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Uh, proudly arrogant basically points out that every single setting in these stories is memorable, which, uh, touche. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. They
1: they just list a bunch of like really minor ones and you're like, yeah, of course I remember that setting. It was awesome. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All of them. Yeah, Yeah. I like that.
1: Literal headcanon says Brockton Bay uh, it's a parahuman's take on the distinct fictional city trope we see in classic comic versus Metropolis, Gotham City, Brockton Bay. It's not a clear take on a specific existing real city, but it still feels like a developed real place. Yeah, yeah. sure. I mean, we, and, and it, like a lot of these things in the story, it, it changes over the course of the story.
2: Yeah. Cool. And, and yeah, it's, uh, it's been through some shit too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. right green door 65 says cauldron headquarters hey that's fitting yeah. it's emblematic of their organization vast mysterious utilitarian and utterly cold and sterile it just raises questions who built it who else worked there what kind of horrors hide in these endless vaults that we never get to see what other kind of wondrous technologies and powers did they have stashed away that they never got to use whose stories began and ended here that we will never hear i like yeah. i like the way that's written that's really cool
1: yeah yeah, I don't have much to add there. It's really great. Really great. Stelhex uh, also says the cauldron headquarters. The structure, uh, so sorry, they they basically quote this um, this bit that, that I think they basically just found this to be a really evocative bit. So, th- so that's why they bring this out. The structure has shifted, rotated. It's designed to corkscrewing down over time and with any degree of force or movement. It ensures the integrity of the panic room function, and it would have confused some of the first powerful non-cauldron teleporters we were aware of. The route you use to enter no longer leads into whatever corridor or entry point you use to break through. We'd have to dig anew. Um, I mean, it's just I, I guess I guess the cool thing about this is that like they they literally have like this ridiculously complex corkscrewing falling panic room built into their incredibly elaborate base. It's just this great you know uh, uh, emphasis on how. Uh, kind of how, how much of a crazy supervillain layer this place is.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. That does help. The 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 ridiculous insanity of it kind of really helps establish the 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 villaininess of that layer. Yeah. yeah. Bregalad HS says the Undersiders' Loft. It's not hugely important to the plot, at least not compared to other places, but very interesting in its relation to Taylor. On the one hand, it's a place where a bunch of teenage friends can hang out completely without adult supervision. For Taylor, who has been both bullied by her peers and repeatedly let down by adult authority figures, it's the only positive social environment she currently has access to. Of course, the place itself is not that important to Taylor, but it helps us, the readers, understand why she's so drawn to these guys. It's the dream of any teenager, and it offers Taylor freedom and independence from the things and the people that she doesn't want to deal with. On the other hand, it's the headquarters of a criminal organization that our protagonist has inf- infiltrated in her on her own without any real plan and the intention of betraying them all. It adds a certain tension to the story and stresses to the character, especially since she has spent a lot of time in close quarters with a dangerous thinker who could figure out her secret at any time and of course did figure out her secret uh-huh. immediately. Immediately. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that 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 central dichotomy and and I I agree. Like I remember Like the feeling of this place the first time Taylor visited it, the first time Taylor was given a spot here, like given her room and how that how like how important and essential and freeing that was to her as a person at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, It was powerful. It's crazy to think like go all that back when like the most important thing happening to her was she has a place that she could just hang out and, and not feel judged. But
1: right. No, that's great. I mean, I remember feeling a sense of loss when they all moved to their own separate uh, supervillain layers uh, yeah. in, in different parts in the city. It felt like an era, an, an era had been lost where like a lot of what Taylor was getting out of being a supervillain was this was the social life for the first time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's
2: it's essentially more adult, too. It's not like she moved from a loft of hanging out like video games and junk food and, and rooms to each having their own base and hers is creepy as shit. Yeah. Um, it, it, is, it is a move to a different kind of organization, away from the the teen gang onto more dark stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that answer a lot. Uh, Me for Mars says the graveyard where Annette Hebert was laid to rest. Aww. The graveyard itself isn't overly described, more its location relative to the rest of Brockton Bay's landmarks. It's out of the way away from where most of the action of worm has happened so far. That said, it's of great importance for Taylor so much so that she unconsciously seeks it out. Yeah. I, what's interesting about when she actually seeks it out is like, you're not sure whether she's unconsciously seeking out or whether she's seeking it out or just not thinking about the fact that she's seeking it out. You know, yeah. Taylor's Taylor's a very complicated little, uh, little, little person there. So,
2: yeah. And I think the the fun thing about this to me is, you know, it, it's been a while since we've talked about worm. Um, and we've spent weeks and weeks and hours and hours talking about this book to the point where, you know, you start to forget what was in that past book mm-hmm. and the parts that really stick out to you then become the ones that you just have to say are the most impactful to you. Mm-hmm. And Taylor at her mother's grave is a part that I still can remember like almost perfectly clearly here two years later whatever. Um, I like that is one of those scenes in the book that just sticks in my brain. And I, so I, I love this answer because I absolutely agree. Like it's a place that she goes once we never really see it again, but it is so key to this monumental shift in what the character is, is trying to do that. It it just, it just has, has planted itself in my head.
1: Yeah, me too. I agree. Love it.
2: All right. Um, next we have death of the artist. (laughs) Who talks about how politics and settings influence characters. For example, how the Americans and the glimpses of Indian, African and Chinese capes imply how wildly different their backrooms really are and how realistic and varied the world is. So, yeah, they went a little bit of a different direction um, and talked about, you know, not necessarily how settings influence characters, but no, not how characters influence settings, but how settings influence character.
1: Yeah. yeah, right. Because I mean, we, we do spend some time in, in New Delhi. We get a sense of that as a setting. But yeah, I think their their point here is that like the, the actual way that the Indian characters behave is, is different than the way the American characters do. And a lot of that is because their their whole milieu is, is, is very different. Um, Their their whole cape scene is very different. So yeah, cool. I mean, obviously, like the young or this terribly abused cult. So right, they, they right. all behave differently, too. Yeah. Um, finally, last answer. Wanson says, I cannot get the corpse of Eden out of my mind. A weird kind of forest made of limbs and faces and body parts subtly shifting and twisting.
2: Ah, I love that. Yeah. That's one of those ones. I never would have thought about that as a setting. Um, right. I like that. So Matt, do you have an answer for this that wasn't covered or maybe it was covered? Do you have a setting that you really love?
1: Um, I mean, I, I think I think my, like what I was thinking about last week was one of the answers that was given here, which was just Brockton Bay as a as a city. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, the reason I'm really like I just love so many of these answers is that people really narrow down into like particular rooms. And when you, like it's just really good writing because every one of these rooms, every one of these small settings has its own feeling with it. Yeah, that's one of the things about writing that I I don't I don't think I talk enough about on the show, but it's one of my favorite things about writing. Full stop is that you can teleport a person to a a place and and bring bring the feeling of that place into that person's mind with with like a, a kind of sharp immediacy that you just don't get anywhere else in any medium. And. Um, and wild Blow does this over and over to the point where like, as I'm reading through these answers, I'm being yanked into these places in my mind. Um, it's, it's really, really cool thing to think about. And it makes me wonder if maybe I haven't been paying enough attention to setting, um, in the course of this show. And, and, you know, I definitely intend to, to think about it more actually.
2: Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, and I think that that honestly ties into what my answer was going to be, which is what Sarah penguin said, which is the, the Brockton Bay wards. Mm hmm. You know, base op mm-hmm. like operational facility, place where they live. There is so much, like there is so much emotion there, and like so much work around. Just the central idea of what it means to be a teenage superhero is is shown just in the emotion of the setting and the feeling that that setting creates in you like the the like I, I just close my eyes and see it. You know, it's kind of a mess because these kids like they're really busy and they're working really hard and they don't take that much care of it. But like it's it's a mess in a way that like it's not just like they're slobs or not all of them rather, but just that they're like they don't have time to always pick up after themselves. They're busy. They're doing all these different things. It's like a m- mixture of just Trash and work (laughs) stuff at the same time, you know, like it just like you can see it and this, like it has this very distinct feel to it to me um, that I just really love. Like I I feel like when I think about what it's like to be a ward, I am the first thing that I do is imagine their living situation for some reason. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, And I think, I think that does show the power of setting to really influence how you how you feel about characters and how you feel about themes and and stuff like that i think it's i think it is a very powerful device that authors have in their arsenal
1: yeah right i mean i i find myself lacking the language to really talk about it too much because i'm like how does how does the wards hq make you feel And i'm like ah you you know you you read it
2: yeah <laughs> right? in, like, industrious like uh, comp- yeah. complex and
1: right Lots of regimen. And yeah, it's lots of things. Yeah. I I know of no way of expressing it short, short of making you read that part. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. right. Yeah. Awesome.
2: Thanks, guys. That was great answers. Great answers.
1: Yeah. All right. So the discussion question for next week is uh, what. uh, So this is reflecting the kind of cauldron esque discussion above. What moral quandary in parahumans humans stuck with you the most, and how do you think Wildbo constructs such fiendish situations?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I like this question a lot because I think it's it's something that you know we've talked about a lot in Worm, and less so in this book because this book has kind of not has intentionally not sought out those kind of things. It's a different yeah. kind of story, right? But. um, but I think there is some still some stuff here to talk about yeah. as well.
1: Well, and and you know, usually these conversations tend to devolve into um litigating whether the character did the right thing or the wrong thing. And like th- to me, I mean, that's fine. That that's fine. And and, and I do that too mm-hmm. sometimes. But like the point the point of the question is which one of these stuck with you the most and pro- you know, if it stuck with you, it's probably because you couldn't quite convince yourself that one answer was better than the other or or something like that. Right. Right. I don't want to put words in people's mouths or whatever. Like if there's all kinds of reasons why something may have stuck with you. Um, Yeah.
2: Well, and, and, you know, how, how those situations are constructed in that way. Right. Like a book could very easily give you the answer. Right. right. I mean, like it it constructs the situation and then solves it for you. It could do that. But, um, this book doesn't, neither of these books do that. Yeah. And, and how, how do they not do that? In a way that is still interesting and engaging and ties into what the book is trying to say, I think yeah. is, is what we're circling around. So have yeah. fun with it.
1: Cool. And that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading.
2: You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over at our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at more than a mail. You can follow us there and listen to us complain about Game of Thrones.
1: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else uh, that podcasts can be found.
2: And as always, you can find all the shows and all the content we do over at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you can find Vow to View, Deep Impact, and the Doofcast, which this week, Matt... Is going to be covering season one of Avatar: The Last Airbender. Awesome! Pretty excited for that conversation. I hope Me too. everyone is too.
1: Yeah, we're uh, going to be doing an Avatar kick for for a little bit. I
2: a think. little bit, yeah, a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and if you like any of uh, any of these shows. Um, including Deep Impact, which is, is is really, really excellent right now. They're getting to some of my favorite parts of the story.
2: I got to catch uh, up. I'm so behind. Yeah, you will. You will. Uh,
1: <laughs> consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and costume contests q a sessions access to live streams of our recording sessions and our excellent discord chat you know one thing we i don't know if we mentioned on here ever is that uh there are different reward tiers like one of them is if you donate above a certain level you can basically make us do um a doofcast episode on whatever topic you choose within within reason um and we've We've done a lot of those. That's that's a lot yeah. of what our shows are, actually.
2: That's why um, we're doing Avatar, actually. Yeah,
1: right. So if, you know, if, if there's something that you want uh, to hear us talk about, you can just go over and, and donate at that level and make that happen.
2: It's basically the make us watch anime hour. Um, yeah, that's
1: what it ends up being, yeah.
2: But you know what? That's fine. I'll do it. I'll watch all the anime you guys want me to.
1: <laughs> I'm going to regret like saying it, though, right?
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't mean I'm going to like it at all. Yeah.
1: All right. That's that's a much higher reward level. <laughs> <laughs> uh and and of course this week, special thanks to new Bidoof, Adam P at the one dollar level. Uh, thanks so much, Adam. Um it's it's folks like you that make all this possible. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Appreciate that. And and of course, everybody make sure you go over to Wildbow's Patreon, patreon.com slash wildbo and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it.
2: You know, we wrote that sentence like two years ago. I'm still saying it. It's cool. I, I yeah. like that sentence. Yeah, me too. And if you can't afford to donate right now, that's absolutely okay, guys. There are tons of ways you can help us out. Share the podcast. Retweet our, our tweets. That's helpful. <laughs> and you can head on over to uh, Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This week's Spotlight review comes from Torch Salesman, who gives us five stars and says... This is the podcast that other literary analysis podcasts should strive to be. Oh, gosh, that <laughs> makes me nervous. Uh, I'm so glad that I discovered this when I first started reading Worm because Matt and Scott's commentary is now, in my opinion, an absolutely integral part to, of experiencing the story. The chemistry between the hosts is fantastic. The commentary is informed, informative. And frequently hilarious. And although the quality of the show took a major hit when we were no longer able to rely on Fugly Bob skits, rest in peace. My first thought after reading every new chapter is I can't wait to see how Scott and Matt react to this one. Without a doubt, my favorite podcast. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Jeez, that was yeah. so nice. Wow. Oh, gosh, it's one of those ones where I don't know what to say. Thank yeah. you. I'm uh,
1: glad we read these at the end of the show and not the beginning because I, I would be all flustered if we read them at the beginning. I know. I
2: wouldn't be able to continue the show. Um, sorry about Fugly Bob, guys. I think Fugly Bob is a victim of um, a lot of things.
1: Yeah. Uh, we. I think we have a, a Fugly Bob script, unproduced Fugly Bob script that's been sitting in a drive for like a year and a half now.
2: That's literally true. That is yeah. absolutely true. Um, yeah. This is, this is the problem with covering something live is our, our production deadline is so oh, yeah. tight that it just becomes impossible to do right. a lot of the bonus stuff that we did during worm.
1: Yeah. Oh, well maybe we'll get back to it someday. One day. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week's show next week
2: on the show. Um, is is black over? Do you think? I don't know, Matt. I'm not in the prediction game anymore. I wrote on the script, let me flip a coin, and then I didn't get a coin, so. Yeah. So I gotta die. Let's do that.
1: I happen to have a poker chip, which is actually black, ironically.
2: Do it. Flip. Wait, does it have a clear head? It's
1: black. It says black. No, I mean, it's black on both sides, so it's definitely gonna continue to be black.
2: Okay, well, there we go. Yep. (laughs) We'll see you next week.